Hi, Tablet listeners. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Adam Chandler, sitting in for Sarah Ivry. Today, we're talking about the Palestinian bid for statehood. This Friday, as you've no doubt heard by now, the Palestinians will formally make their bid for full membership in the United Nations Security Council. In other words, they're asking to be recognized as an independent state. Sounds straightforward enough, but of course, nothing is ever that straightforward when it comes to the Arab-Israeli conflict. So, who actually wants the bid to succeed, and what can we expect if it fails, which it seems almost destined to do? Today we are enlisting the help of Nathan Thrall to help us answer these and other questions. Thrall is a Middle East analyst for the International Crisis Group. He's just spent a year in Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank doing field-based analysis of the Palestinian bid for statehood. And he's joining us today from Jerusalem to talk about his impressions on the ground. Nathan, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you for having me. Now, for folks who aren't so familiar with Palestinian politics, could you explain how this bid for statehood came about? Sure. Uh, The move to go to the UN is uh, best understood as coming out of a place of of desperation. The Palestinian leadership, particularly this Palestinian president, has been been advocating a path of uh, negotiations with Israel to arrive at a a two-state solution for two decades. And he's really running out of credibility. The last few years have, from Israel's perspective, have been a period of uh, great calm and, uh, and prosperity. And it's perhaps difficult for an average Israeli to understand why a period of calm and prosperity should lead to this move of desperation but from the perspective of the Palestinian leadership, they've been promising their people that uh, joining the security forces, uh, turning their weapons against other Palestinians, arresting members of Hamas, all of these moves that are seen as uh, essentially caving to the uh, Israeli leadership are done uh, ostensibly in the service of eventually arriving at a negotiated s- solution. And the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, shortly after he held negotiations with uh, the Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, in uh, the fall of 2010, found that really the gaps were extremely wide and, and he was not going to, even at the, not only was he not going to begin the negotiations where they had left off with the previous Israeli prime minister, Ehud Olmert, but he was unlikely even to arrive at the same place. Generally speaking, what is the mood among the Palestinians regarding the statehood bid? Uh, for the last several weeks, most Palestinians that you would speak to were, were very dismissive of the UN bid and, and kind of uninterested in speaking about it. And it, it was uh, really a stark contrast with discussions in Israel where everyone was consumed with, with the UN bid and really, to some degree, saw... Uh, the Palestinian move through the prism of Israeli history, and we're imagining this momentous occasion in 1947 when, uh, you know, residents are sitting on the edge of their seat, uh, cheering and clapping as each new country votes yay or nay. And um, the Palestinian attitude couldn't be more different. They've, they've had uh, decades of uh, UN support and, and UN re- resolutions, that they view as as having done very little for them. And in the last couple of days, uh, a poll was put out by Near East Consulting, 
whose head was one of the only, I think was the only pollster who uh, successfully predicted the Hamas victory in the legislative elections of 2006. And this poll contradicted basically what everybody was reporting, which was that Palestinians were apathetic about the UN bid. And he found a a huge majority that uh, not only was not apathetic, but expected Palestinian President uh, Mahmoud Abbas to succeed. So my impression, I I haven't looked at at the poll, only the, the reporting of it, but my impression is that there... There is more interest in it now, and there is less apathy, but I I still think we're far from uh, a place where Palestinians are as riled up about it as Israelis are. And in in fact, I just passed 30 minutes ago through the Hizma checkpoint just outside Pisgat Ze'ev in northern Jerusalem. And at that checkpoint, there was not a single Palestinian flag to be seen, but there were uh, Israelis passing out Israeli flags to to settlers who were leaving the West Bank and entering Jerusalem. I'm curious to know, as far as the International Crisis Group is concerned, what's the worst case scenario if this bid reaches the Security Council? Uh, well, I'll, I'll get to the worst case scenario in a moment, but one thing that should be said is that it's not at all clear that after the Palestinian president submits an application for full membership to the Secretary General, who then presents that to the Security Council, that the Security Council will return with a decision. It could wind up being the case that uh, this application will be put forward and the Security Council will, through all kinds of procedural delays, essentially let the initiative die a quiet death. And and it's even possible that they will do that with the uh, complicity of the Palestinian leadership. So, the, the worst case scenario is that the uh, Palestinian president is seen to have failed in New York. Now, it should be said that his definition of failure and the Palestinian people's definition of failure isn't necessarily our definition of failure. So in some sense, just applying to the Security Council for full membership as a member of the UN in defiance of the United States is something of a victory for him because he is seen as someone who is caved uh, largely to the demands of Israel and the United States for many years. And there are some people who, who cynically interpret this move as just, as just something that, that will uh, extend the longevity of this regime for another few months or perhaps uh, longer. The worst case scenario is that the Palestinian president comes back and is seen as a failure. And Palestinian people ask, you know, this path of uh, negotiations has led nowhere. Now you've promised us something uh, to be gained from this path of going to the UN. That's led nowhere. Where do we go from here? And the other worst case scenario is, of course, that the U.S. cuts uh, funding to the Palestinian Authority and that Israel does something that's even more damaging, which is that it freezes, transfers of uh, taxes that it collects on the Palestinian Authority's behalf. And those taxes account for roughly 45% of the Palestinian Authority's budget. And uh, the PA would collapse shortly thereafter. So uh, a total collapse of the PA is not in Israel's interest, and uh, it's not in the U.S.'s interest, and would be ripe territory for uh, an attempt by Hamas to take over. If you had to make a prediction uh, about what might come to pass in the next week or so, what do you think is going to happen? I think that 
one distinct possibility is that there is an application to the Security Council that, as I say, dies a quiet death, and that Abu Mazen gets to come home and be a hero for confronting the United States, and Israel basically attempts to keep the status quo, uh, which is uh, high levels of uh, security cooperation with the Palestinian security forces, and no changes on the ground uh, in the West Bank. So let's back up a little bit and talk about your work here in the region. In addition to being an analyst for the International Crisis Group, you're also a journalist. What exactly is your beat there, and how long have you been writing about the Middle East? I've been writing about the Middle East um, since I started uh, working as a, as a reporter uh, shortly after graduating from uh, a master's program at Columbia, and uh, that was in the summer of 2006. I wasn't sure what I was going to do with myself, and a few weeks uh, later, a few weeks after graduating, um, Gilad Shalit was kidnapped, and uh, a couple weeks after that, the two Israeli soldiers were abducted by Hezbollah, and a, and a war broke out. And I moved to the Middle East in, in the middle of that war and, and started writing for the Jerusalem Post shortly thereafter. Nathan, I understand you spent part of today in the West Bank. I was curious to know what brought you there and what you saw. Sure. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, settlers came to a village called Kusra, that's southeast of Nablus, and um, threw a few tires inside a, a mosque there, set them on fire, and spray-painted some graffiti. Um, so subsequent to this uh, incident, which got a fair amount of coverage, the village formed a uh, so-called defense committee, and uh, shortly after the formation of this defense committee, the, uh, one of the villagers went to tend his field in the south of the village. Uh, this is last Friday, and he apparently was picking some figs, and nine settlers came, and there was a some kind of kerfuffle, and he wound up getting shot in the leg by the settlers, and then a lot of... Uh, uh, Israeli defense forces came, and I, I'm not sure the status of the uh, settlers, if any, which of them have been apprehended and for how long. And so I, I spoke with that man who was shot today, and I spoke to another resident of the village and asked them about these defense committees because um, there are expected to be a lot of demonstrations this week. And the settlers have announced that wherever there will be demonstrations, they plan to come and, and launch counter-demonstrations. And so I wanted to know what the role of these defense committees were and whether they were possibly going to be a, a, a source of friction with the settlers. And what I discovered, essentially, is that uh, I, I was sitting at the same time with somebody who was describing the defense committee to me and with the man who was uh, shot in the thigh. And the, as the defense committee was, was being described to me, I, I, you know, the defense committee is not armed. And it's basically, I, I asked, you know, what does this defense committee do? And they said, well, you know, if, if one of the villagers is being confronted or attacked by settlers, then he calls and we announce uh, that something's happening on the, on the loudspeaker of the mosque and, and all the villagers come uh, to the scene. And I said, well, how does that differ from, you know, the period before you, you formed this defense committee? If someone were attacked, wouldn't you uh, all gather to, to help this person? And they said, well, you know, now we're on alert all the time. And uh, 
As I asked further details about the defense committee, the, the man who was shot in the leg kept raising his eyebrows in, in skepticism to indicate to me that, uh, that this uh, defense committee was, was useless. So I, I think that, you know, that the, the relevance to the UN bid is essentially that uh, most Palestinians are, are, to the extent that they are worried about what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks, they're worried about confrontations with settlers. But the, uh, the larger uh, Israeli worry of large uh, demonstrations and marches towards settlements and so forth, most Palestinians are very dismissive of that uh, as a possibility, and, and they see violence as extremely unlikely, uh, even laughing uh, at the idea. That's interesting to hear. Uh, there are a lot of fears about violence following whatever happens at the UN in the next, uh, the next week or so. I, I also have, a, actually, I, I forgot a, a funny anecdote that the villagers gave me today. Um, this village, Kusra, is surrounded by several settlements, and the villagers made a point of saying that they have good relations with actually the closest uh, settlement, unlike with the ones to its south where they believe the attackers come from. And they said even on the day of this attack last Friday near the fig trees, there were uh, members of this settlement with whom they have good relations shopping in the village, and no one said a word to them, and every, everything was fine. And I asked them what they saw as the difference between these two settlements, why they had good relations with one and, and not with the others, and they said, well, this settlement close to us isn't religious, they're Russian. And, uh, and so I, I thought that it was uh, rather amusing that they saw those two as mutually uh, not without warrant, but as mutually exclusive categories. That is pretty funny. <laughs> Nathan, let's talk about Gaza for a minute. We hear a lot about Gaza, and some of it is the bad, which is, of course, an open-air prison it's characterized as, as well as a place with very high population density and abject poverty. And then on the other hand, you hear stories about beaches and resorts and cafes and beautiful restaurants. I'm curious to know which of those impressions is correct, uh, if any of them are, and um, what your take on it is. I, I think that they're all correct in the sense that there are uh, brand new supermarkets, very well stocked, luxurious uh, hotels, and uh, you know water parks, but those cater only to a very small segment of Gaza's population as well as to foreigners. There are also uh, refugee camps with uh, open sewage. And as far as the prison metaphor goes, it's, it's still very difficult for uh, Gazans to leave uh, the Strip. Uh, Gaza is a place with uh, very high levels of unemployment. It's a coastal region. It's always had lots of foreigners throughout its history. It's a very uh, welcoming place. It's, uh, in many places, quite beautiful. Uh, I think that one of the most interesting uh, phenomena in, in Gaza over the last several years is a, is a product of the Hamas takeover in June 2007. Shortly after the takeover, the Ramallah-based Palestinian Authority attempted to cripple the Hamas government by requesting that all of its employees in Gaza go on strike. And the, the threat was that they would uh, lose their salaries if they um, did not go on strike. And in fact, there are informants who, if they 
found that you were going to work for any Hamas uh, institution, not even your normal job, that you would have your salary cut. The result, uh, four years later, is an entire class of former elites in, in Gaza, an entire class of former officials of the Palestinian Authority in Gaza, who have been staying at home and receiving paychecks uh, specifically to stay at home. Uh, and what they've been doing is gaining weight, playing cards, uh, losing respect in the eyes of their children, and becoming addicted to uh, painkillers, which are uh, illegal but smuggled in large quantities across the border with Sinai. Well, that's certainly depressing to hear. Um... Nathan, I just have one more question for you. You're in Jerusalem now, where you spend a lot of time. What's the mood among Israelis regarding the Palestinian bid for statehood and everything else that's been happening during the spring and summer? I think the mood among uh, Israelis is one of panic. Um, The uh, entire security buffer that they had enjoyed through their alliance or or at least uh, cold peace with um with Hosni Mubarak's Egypt and uh and with Turkey is is crumbling the uh quiet that they had enjoyed uh with Assad and his father now appears to be in jeopardy and there are even uh new tensions arising with uh Jordan one of Israel's uh, closest allies in the region so uh, I think uh, Israelis are very apprehensive of everything that's happening around them and, and the uh, quote-unquote diplomatic tsunami that Defense Minister Ehud Barak had spoken of uh, several months ago uh, appears to have arrived. Nathan Thrall, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Nathan Thrall is a journalist who, I should mention, contributes to Tablet Magazine. He's also the Middle East analyst for the International Crisis Group. He spoke to us from Jerusalem. We've got lots more about the Palestinian bid for statehood on the site this week. Be sure to check it out. It's tabletmag.com. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Adam Chandler, in for Sarah Ivry. She'll be back next week. Thanks for listening, and do come back.